Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on January 18th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the first program in our series in 2022 to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about educating for democracy. How is it working? We'll talk about the political philosophy and history of public education in America, what role, what is the role of public education in sustaining our fragile republic, how did public education develop and evolve over time, what has been or should be the role of public education in creating a shared civic enterprise? And have we lost sight of some of these important public benefits? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Doris Santoro is a philosopher of education. She's professor of education at Bowdoin College. She's also a senior associate editor for the American Journal of Education. We're delighted to have you here, Doris. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. And John Zimmerman, Jonathan Zimmerman, we'll call you John if that's all right, is uh, the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. He is one of the foremost education historians in the field today. We're delighted to have you and honored. Welcome, John. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Over the last few years, our public education system has become a bit of a battleground. School board meetings have become a venue for some of the most contentious debates in public life right now, mask mandates and critical race theory. There's model legislation circulating in some states, I think New Hampshire had one of these, that bans teaching any divisive concept bars teachers from encouraging students to participate in politics at all, and forbids hiring equity and diversity cons consultants. At the same time, our Supreme Court seems determined to allow parents to use public money for private schools of their choice, even possibly schools that teach intolerance. Can we hold the republic this way? That's our question for today. John, let me put it to you first. Put these recent events in context for us. When we as taxpayers invest in public education, what do we expect to get for our money? Well, I think we expect to get in the broadest sense three things. I think there have been three large purposes of public education across time. And here I borrow from my friend David Labry. The first one is the civic function, the idea of schools making citizens. The second one is what historians call the efficiency function, but is sometimes called the vocational functions, which is preparing people for the workforce um, and having enough competent workers to sustain the economy. And the third is the social mobility function, which is to provide each individual with skills to take herself or himself as far as they can go. Um, I don't think that these functions are mutually exclusive. Um, I think we've pursued all of them at different times, but I also think it's fair to say that at some moments in time, some of these functions have had a higher premium than others. Well, and it seems like, um, you know, with the Supreme Court paying the public education money to parents and letting parents make decisions about where their kids go to school, that almost turns it into uh, a benefit entitlement 
to those families where they can choose whatever they want rather than making it um, an investment in a community enterprise. Doris, is public education an entitlement of children and families or is it an investment in a public good that sustains the republic? Well, I think that what you're pointing to, Anne, is a tension that many people um, in the field of education might compare as a common good versus a consumer good mentality. And so the idea that I, as the consumer, get to choose the you know, best product for my child, and I am going to um, shop for that, and I'm also going to advocate that for that within um, her school. And so we can see that, that mentality happening even within public schools. Um, for instance, when parents um, advocate for a particular teacher because they've heard that's the teacher who gets the students into um, you know, a particular school. Or um, if we, sorry, that was a logging truck going by, I think. Um, or, um, or we can also see it um, when um, we in, see, um, the kinds of initiatives like charter schools, you know, where I'm now should have a number of choices uh, and products to choose from within this kind of uh, education portfolio, you know, so that's one way of thinking about it. Um, and, and what you're pointing to with um, Carson v. Macon in front of the Supreme Court um, last month is the question of do uh, religious schools end up being part of that portfolio. You know, that is the question you're you're asking about. Um, you know, I definitely um, and uh, I, I definitely fall on uh, the side of that education is a com common good um, and is for the common good. And what that means is that uh, we it is not the zero sum game where if I succeed um, or my child succeeds then others do not, or if other children succeed, somehow my child is getting less. You know, I, I do see this as more of um, an opportunity to think about how do we build strong communities? How do we, you know, whether that is our local community, whether it's a state, whether it's thinking about um, whether it's thinking about the, the nation, how do we build um, strong communities that are able to uh, function well together? And so we have seen in the last um, several decades um, a push towards this consumer good um, mentality. But the other piece we need to keep in mind is when people say, oh, okay, well, there's so many students in charter schools now, there's so many students in, um, in religious schools now or pri private schools now. You know, one of the things we need to recognize is while there's a lot of noise around that, about 90% of students in the United States attend a public school. And, um, and that is the case in Maine, the number is about, the percentage is about 89%. And so, you know, when, when we hear about these other um, opportunities, you know, it's really the fact that 
we have as a nation, you know, every single state has the provision of public education in their state constitution. And we have as a as states and as a nation have seen public education as something we want to invest in. And so, and the thing is, is that most students do, most children do attend um, a public school. So we do depend on this as a common resource, not just as one that benefits individuals. And I mean, John, talk about that in the context of what you're saying, making citizens, making workforce, making social mobility, because I think the value we place on those three dimensions has probably waxed and waned over time, yeah. does it not? Yeah. And and I think I think most of what Doris was talking about falls in the third category of social mobility. That is finding what I think is the best for my kid, right? Whatever the consequences for others may may be or may not be. Um, I just want to pick up on a couple of uh, really important things I think Doris said. First of all, the idea that most Americans attend a quote regular public school. I think that's really important, and it's the sort of thing that in a city like Philadelphia, where I'm calling in from today, you lose sight of because there's such an intricate charter network. But let's also remember that when Betsy DeVos was up for confirmation, there were two Republicans that voted against her. Who were they? Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, right? That's why Mike, Mike Pence had to break the tie, right? There's so many things that happened for the first time during Trump that we forget all of them. But a vice president had never actually, you know, broken a tie on um, the vote for a cabinet member. And that's happened in DeVos. Now, why were Collins and Murkowski opposed to DeVos? The reason is that DeVos put all of her apples in the charter and voucher box. And charters aren't a thing in rural America. They, uh, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and overall, I think Doris is right. Um, uh, that is, the vast majority of Americans go to regular public schools, always will be. But to your question, Anne, about how these different goals are being balanced or not, um, even though I disagree with much of what's happened in these local school boards and in these legislatures, especially the gag rules on teachers, I also think it's fair to say that in a way they do represent a revival of the civic function. I agree with Doris about the, the role of the common good in schools, but what that means is that all of us have a common interest in them and also, let's remember, a common right, and I would even say duty, to participate in what they're going to be. There are many reasons that Terry McAuliffe lost to Glenn Youngkin. But the biggest one, and it was, in my view, an unforced error, was when he said, you know, parents shouldn't really be participating in curriculum or deciding whether we, you know, teach Tony Morrison or whatever it was. Um, I think he was wrong in the politics, but also I'd say that he was frankly wrong in the philosophy, the way I think about it. If you take what we're calling the civic function and what Doris called the common good seriously, you're going to have to bring citizens into the conversation about what they want citizens to be. And a lot of the stuff you're not going to like very much. But um, even though I don't like a lot of the stuff that's been expressed in places like Loudoun County, Virginia, I do take a measure of of um, optimism in it, because that battle has not been about like who gets into the AP class or you know how many plumbers we need. It's been about the big question, I think, which is what do we want America to be? And if you believe in asking that question, you're going to have to accept that there can be a lot of answers that you don't like. Well, and we're going to, I want to spend a little time on that, maybe not right at this moment in the show, but, you know, they've got sort of a federal mission creating a shared American vision of, 
you know, the, well, the common good or making citizens or whatever it is. But, you know, what's a, a good citizen in Maine and what we think it takes to build a good citizen in Maine may be way different from what they think it takes to build a good citizen in Texas. So, I mean, how, how does that really play out? I mean, how can we have a shared vision of America and feel bound together as a nation when these decisions are all made locally? Doris? I think, I, I think John pointed to an important piece of a shared vision of um, America, and that is the opportunity to use one's voice um, to try to influence the public. And so that is what it means to uh, be part of a democracy, much more than it is one person, one vote, or the opportunity to popularly elect um, our, our, our preferred candidate, but instead to be able to like, express those um, opinions and to be able to say that and believe that I have a right to have an influence. You know, that is one of the reasons that uh, we have publicly elected school boards in many um, places uh, throughout the country and that these are citizen school boards um, where um, folks are able to uh, represent their community and who are accountable to their community for enacting these local rules. So I'm not sure that um, an American um, identity in terms of a common good needs to be assimilationist. Ah, well, let's talk about that a little bit more because, you know, these, these laws that are passing are teaching not only that you can't use your voice for political activism, but that you shouldn't know about our history, our racial history, you shouldn't know about really any divisive topic. I mean, these are, I don't know, these are assimilation concepts, aren't they? Like, let's just rub out all the diversity here, John. And they're hugely troubling on free speech grounds and civic grounds and everything else. And yet at the same time, um, I'd like to put in a modest plea for assimilation, and here's why. I think that the kind of skills that Doris was describing are not natural. We don't come out of the womb saying, well, I'm going to listen to everything you say carefully and, you know, not kill you. Um, I, I think those things are learned and they're assimilated, right? Um, one way of looking at our current moment is we did a poor job of assimilating them. Right? How can you look at the past five years without thinking about it as an epic fail for civic life in America? I think people across the political spectrum would agree with that. In fact, it's one of the only things they do agree with, right? We are a hugely divided country, but when you ask Americans in surveys, are you pleased with the tenor and the quality of political dialogue in this country across the political spectrum? And it's the only thing we agree with. This sucks. Right? That's the only thing we agree on right now. And that's an epic fail for our education system. Please understand the teachers out there, I'm not quote blaming you. Um, in fact, it's the opposite. This is on all of us. I would argue, to borrow Doris's language, that we've done a very poor job of assimilating the kind of skills and capacities you need to be a uh, you need in order to become a citizen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's been a huge challenge especially in recent years, and especially, and here I'll show a little bit of my partisan colors, during the last presidential administration, because what you had in the figure of Trump 
Was you in a person who in his daily life and his daily behavior was violating many of those civic canons? Um, uh, the idea that we should agree to disagree, that we should treat people that we disagree with with respect. And when I spoke to teachers during the Trump administration, I had a couple of lines, sort of throwaway lines like, like we all use. And one of them was, you must communi communicate in your classroom that anyone here and anyone not here has the right to like Trump, has the right to vote for him, campaign for him, support his policies, but no one can act like Trump. Mm -hmm. So you can't call women pigs. I mean, you can, right? It's legal and I support that, but not in my classroom and not in my watch. And the reason is that sort of behavior actually contradicts the sort of assimilation that we need, I would argue, and assimilation to a set of civic norms that we need to conduct dialogue in the first place. And we've done a poor job of assimilating that. Okay, I'm going to take a little station break and we're going to come back on that. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is educating for democracy. How's that working? Our guests this afternoon are Doris Santoro, Professor of Education at Bowdoin College, and Jonathan Zimmerman, the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. This program was pre-recorded on January 18th. No listener calls are being taken. So, I mean, I, I think about like, maybe this is all wet, but like public education should be teaching people how to be grownups. Like you have to know how to balance your checkbook. You have to know how to make a living. You have to know how to take responsibility. And part of that is you have to know how to take responsibility in public life. Like taking, taking a participation, I'm the League of Women Voters after all, in, in politics and public life, it, it's what adults do in a democracy. And some of the people I know in my own family from a certain generation do not get that. They're like, I don't do politics. Um, so was there a time, you know, what happened in public education for a time that meant between the Cold War and now somewhere in there, People didn't really get that at school, it seems like. John, she said. Okay, John. I mean, look, I say that in some ways the Cold War, uh, as awful and expensive and horrible as it was in many ways, was a boon for public education insofar as it did give us a kind of shared goal, right? And from the Cold War, we got things like um, you know, the National Science Foundation, and indeed, I would argue in some ways, the Elementary Secondary and Education Act. You know, there were investments in education in part because people said like, holy crap, like the Soviets sent a satellite into space, we gotta get our act together. And they were right. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying they were right about the arms buildup, but they were right about the fact that a lot of American education, including in the STEM areas was inadequate. And I think the Cold War provided an imperative for changing it. I want to emphasize the Cold War also provided an imperative for making our schools more equitable and less racist. So, you know, one of the key elements of Soviet propaganda was that, you know, in Alabama, uh, big beefy racist cops were putting water hoses on little black kids. And one of the things I always emphasize to my students is that propaganda is either true or untrue. Propaganda doesn't mean a lie. It just means the organized effort by the state to organize public opinion. 
And so when Soviet propaganda said that there was a lot of racist behavior in the United States, that was true. And it also provided a huge imperative for changing some of those behaviors in this country. So the Cold War was great on that score. I mean, it was great insofar as it did provide that impetus um, to, I would argue, you know, change American education, not as much as it should have been, right? To make it more equitable, even though it remains highly inequitable. And it also gave us a kind of shared civic project, which I do think that we've lost. Was there a time after that, you know, after the Iron Curtain fell and the Berlin Wall came down and all that stuff, I mean, was there a time then without that shared enemy that we began to focus more on educating for workforce? Oh, yeah, that's what a nation at risk is. So right at the time, right near the end of the Cold War, um, Ray, Reagan's Secretary of Education, Terrence Bell, this guy from Utah, wrote this report called Nation at Risk. And it's fascinating because one of the things we've learned is that Reagan campaigned on getting rid of the Department of Education, um, and he was hoping to zero it out. And in some ways, it seems he chose Bell because Bell was sort of a no name and Reagan assumed a placeholder. But Bell wrote this very compelling report in which he argued that we're at risk, not because our civic life is dissembled, because like people are buying cars from Japan and not from us. And it was very much around that second function I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, vocation efficiency and all that. Um, the reason we were at risk is that we weren't preparing people to compete in a global economy. Um, and look, you know, there's some evidence for that too. Um, but I think it's important to note that at the political level, this resonated so deeply with lots of Americans that Reagan had to back off his plan to get rid of the Department of Education. Terrence Bell submarined him, ironically. Reagan was not expecting this report to go anywhere. In fact, he was hoping it wouldn't. But it did resonate with Americans, and I think still does at many levels. Doris, how I, do we... Oh, oh I'm ahead. sorry. No, I was go. just going to say, we see that um, today in, a, in the legacy of a nation at risk, you know, which was 1983. We see um, that legacy in so much of the uh, schools are failing uh, narrative, right? We see that over and over again. And, and that's a discourse that that has been fueled by that kind of, you know, discussion of, okay, we're feeling now, the thing is, are there places that, you know, as John said, you know, schools are still very inequitable, schools have problems in all different kinds of ways. But to call this a a, you know, a summarily a fair failure is, is oversimplified. The other thing I wanted to just point to in terms of where we started moving towards that away from the efficiency and vocation piece, uh, we moved towards that and away from the civic was also through No Child Left Behind and Every Student Succeeds Act, all of these hyper focus on um, the academic. And so it's a moment where we see two things happen. Um, one is that schools become hyper focused on math and reading skills and producing test scores, um, not in the sense of producing citizens. And so this starts really happening, you know, in 2001. Um, and we also see um, the ways in which attention to social studies, history, science, all also took a back seat. So we find teachers saying, we want to address these civic 
um, concerns, but there either is uh, no funding for it. Uh, we're told no focus on making on test prep. And those are the kinds of things that also shifted us away from the civic purpose and left us somewhere where, you know, misinformation thrives and uh, we see a kind of the kind of breakdown in civic discourse that uh, John was talking about. And frankly, I mean, that's why I take some sustenance from these battles over critical race theory in the 1619 project. There has been some misinformation that has been suffused through those debates as well, but they're not about, you know, workplace efficiency and they're not about like who gets the math, the best math score. You know, the question of whether we should read Toni Morrison's Beloved is not an efficiency question. It's not a vocation question. It's not a social mobility question. It's a civic question. And, you know, I think it's good that it's in the frontal lobes now. Just to clarify one thing, you know, when I said the schools were a failure, I didn't mean that each individual school was a failure. I meant that at the civic level, we as a culture have failed to educate people to behave in what I would call civil ways. Um, and as far as No Child Left Behind goes, you know, I've been a big critic of it for many of the reasons that Doris describes. But we should also remember that No Child Left Behind was an enormously popular and bipartisan measure. Some of my colleagues talk about No Child Left Behind as if it was like imposed in a Guatemalan military coup. You know, No Child Left Behind passed the US Congress by 390 to 50. And its sponsors included Ted Kennedy, arguably like the leading liberal standard bearer of the US Senate, and George Miller from the East Bay, by some measures, the most left-leaning congressperson at the time. Now, this does not make it right or was, okay? But it does give me hives whenever I read, and then George Bush passed the No Child Left Behind. It's like, come on, first of all, presidents don't pass laws. And secondly, it was sponsored by the Dems too. It was highly bipartisan. Well, and so like this was an attempt to bring some national standards and some national funding to public education. And I guess the price you have to pay for that is measurement. Like if we're going to give you the money, you have to show you're spending it right. But like, how did this go so wrong? I mean, when everybody really liked it. <laughs> well, well, um, Checker Finn, Chester Finn, who worked in a bunch of Republican administrations, has this great line that I often quote to my students, which is, we'll never really have national tests um, because Republicans don't like national and Democrats don't like tests. And at some level, he was right. Um, because, you know, one of the ways of thinking about No Child Left Behind is it was centralization light. I mean, uh, talk to somebody in China about what centralization really looks like. True. You know, there's one test, it's called the Gaokao. Every single person has to take it. They're ranked against each other across the country. Um, no Child Left Behind did require us to test the kids in grades three through eight and reading and math, but it let each state set its own standard, which is why at one point kids in Mississippi were more proficient in reading than kids in Massachusetts, which was a joke, right? Um, was never true. It was just because of the illogic of this, this thing. So, you know, we didn't actually go the whole way. 
Um, and let's also note that No Child Left Behind has been radically scaled back in what was also a bipartisan act, the evocatively named Every Student Succeeds Act, which passed by almost an identical margin as No Child Left Behind and significantly scaled back what the feds can do. Like you still have to test the kids, but you can do what you want with the numbers. The feds don't apply any of these sanctions, positive and negative to the numbers. It's much more localized. And if you look at who was complaining about no child left behind. That was bipartisan too. It was like right-wing Republicans in Utah and then Randy Weingarten and like the, the AFT, like people that agree about nothing else except that NCLB sucked. The AFT um, being one of the teachers unions, right? That's right. Yeah. So do you want to comment on that, Doris? No child left behind and federalization of public education or not. Yeah, and I and I think one of the ways that and so I absolutely all of that right uh, no child left behind was passed when uh, George W. Bush, Bush was in office. Um, Every Student Succeed Act uh, is while Obama's in office. These are both bipartisan. I one hundred percent agree um, with uh, what Jonathan gave a really um, succinct sort of. Uh, succinct um, vision of what had all happened with that. But what I think we're missing is any kind of substantive vision of what we want for um, for students um, and for um, and for and for you know our society. Um, what do we want for for people um, who are citizens or who are aspiring to become citizens or residents of our country? Um, I say that just as a reminder that. Um, all children in the United States can go to uh, public schools, whether or not they um, are citizens. And so I, I'm just sometimes careful about how, how we um, characterize that. But so, you know, in the absence of having any kind of robust vision of what does it mean to be an educated person in the United States, what we end up with is this um, unthinking adherence to uh, mandates without putting them into any context of a vision of what an educated person would be. So we see uh, situations like following, you know, making sure uh, students perform well on these tests. Why? Why do students need to perform well on on these exams? And um, you know, and like, what what function should exams play in in our society? What do they do for us? Right? They aren't like in China determining whether or not you go to uh, the prestigious university. So what's the purpose of that? So I think that loss of a vision of an educated person or that absence of one is really something that makes us have unthinking application of policy. I agree with that. Um, but I'd just like to add one other thing, which is that No Child Left Behind responded to a real set of problems. Mm -hmm. If what you want to argue, like Doris does and, and I do, that it was the wrong solution to those problems, um, I'll listen, right? And I'll probably agree with you. But there's also a certain amount of, I think, naivete and romance that goes into some of these critiques where they say, if we just took all that NCLB thing away and went back to the good old days, the good old days sucked. That's why we got no child left behind. And again, it was bipartisan because there was a consensus that our schools were inadequate. 
So let's not kid ourselves, right? NCLB might have had some really nefarious consequences. I think it did. But just stripping it away and in a childlike way, imagining that we just sort of go back to the great old days before NCLB, that's not the ticket. One of the things I just wanted to highlight for listeners um, is one of the important problems that No Child Left Behind was responding to was vast inequities um, in in schools um, and and through and and not just in individual schools, but inequities that we see. persistent throughout the entire nation, you know, wherever we look, whether it's a rural school, urban school, well-funded school, poorly funded school, um, we see uh, both students with disabilities, students who are English language learners, students who are Black, Latinx, um, Native American, are all um, not performing as well as their white and Asian and Asian American counterparts. And so this was an attempt to shine a light on those those inequities. And it certainly did. Did it resolve those inequities? It did not. But what it has done is uh, demonstrated that they are pervasive and pretty much near universal. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that's the best part of No Child Left Behind. I've been a critic of the law, but I like the fact that it required the districts to disaggregate the numbers based on race because it showed us precisely what Doris is describing. Uh, and I know that's controversial in some quarters, but my own feeling is, is that, you know, you can't treat a disease until you've diagnosed it. You know, knowledge is always good. I have to take a little station break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Doris Santoro, Professor of Education at Bowdoin College, and Jonathan Zimmerman, the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Our topic this afternoon is Educating for Democracy. How's it working? This show is pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. You can put democracy forum in the subject line. So, I mean, I, I kind of want to ask you, Jonathan, I guess you're the historian here about like the American experiment, you know, going back to the founding of public education and it was always local control. It was always locally funded, but it seemed like, I mean, maybe this is just my vision of the founding utopia, whatever, that there was a stronger commitment, even in these very discrete local jurisdictions to the democratic experiment, and that educating for citizenship was a more universally embraced concept, even locality to locality. Am I just making that up? You know, it's hard to know. Um, I think, you know, in the 19th century, um, most schooling happened in a one-room schoolhouse with a teacher that was generally a woman between the ages of 17 and 20, who had barely more formal education than the students in her charge, some of whom were older than she was. Um, The school term was sometimes only as long as seven weeks. There were holes in the floor and the water bucket froze. Yeah. Um, So, you know, was there a great commitment to kind of civic learning embodied within all of that? Also, let's also forget that the system of discipline was to hit the kids. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I do think there's a danger in romanticizing all this. 
But what I will say is that whether the pedagogy embodied democratic values, it was certainly popular to make schools. And this is one of the things that European visitors commented on constantly. Your listeners have probably read that, you know, there, there was a huge literature of Europeans who went to America, figures like Tocqueville and Dickens. And that's how they paid the bills as they wrote these journals about going to America, which were hugely popular, both in Europe and in America. And one of the things all the Europeans talked about, including Dickens, was, man, first of all, there are so many kids. We made a lot of babies. Um, uh, and secondly, um, if they were white, um, we sent them to school boys and girls, um, the wealthy and the non-wealthy. Um, and obviously there were all sorts of inequalities within that. But one of the things that's remarkable if you think about this cross-nationally is that in the United Kingdom, for 200 years, the Whigs and Tories fought a battle over whether working class kids should go to school. And the Tory answer was no. Like they're gonna be mill workers just like their parents. I mean, why give them that? That could only foretell something really bad. And that was not a question in the United States, nor was it a question whether girls should go, which is really interesting. All sorts of questions about what they should learn there and what they should do afterwards, right? But the idea that, again, and race is a huge marker on this, but the idea that, a limit, but the idea that uh, among whites, that everyone should uh, go or at least have the opportunity to go to school, mostly at the primary levels, was hugely popular. That's why it happened. Mm -hmm. um, there was an enormous consensus on public education. And so how did that evolve over time? I mean, give us a, sort of just a quick timeline of public well, education. Well, the, the very short story is, is the creation of state and federal authority. It was radically local from the 1600s on. You know, sometimes you'll turn on the radio and then you'll, you'll hear people say, and then when Horace Mann started our public schools, there were schools in British North America since white people came here. What Horace Mann and his generation of so-called common school reformers did is they knit or tried to knit all these different schools into a system. And they had a lot of failure in that. I mean, there was a moment in the 1840s where the state of Massachusetts that says to Horace Mann, you know, we don't actually need a superintendent anymore. So why don't you kind of hit the road? Mann wanted there to be what today we would call standards, right? A standard length of term, standard textbook, standard qualifications for teachers. Um, uh, he thought that the state had an interest in doing that. And basically he tried to plead with localities to do it and often fell short because the localities are like, no, you know, this is where my, my dad and my mom went. You know, this is kind of how we do things here. And because schools were so tightly connected to community, people were defensive about them. Right. School was often the only public institution in a community. That was the model. I mean, you move to a place, you uh, uh, displace, alas, or sometimes kill the people that live there, and you elect a school board. That's what happened. And so school was not just the place where kids went to school. It was a place you had like weddings and funerals. You voted, which in some places you still do. Christmas parties as well before the separation of church and state, by the way. Uh, and incidentally, no newspaper account of a one-room schoolhouse Christmas party is complete without Santa's beard catching on fire. <laughs> Santa's like a fat white guy with all his cotton, right? And this is pre-electricity. It's all candles, right? And, and then Santa's beard caught on fire. He ran outside. But to my point, if you start saying you don't like that model, 
there's something deficient with it or the kids aren't learning enough or the school sucks, you're kind of saying the community sucks. These are the, this is the central, uh, the center of social life in some of these. I was going to say that, especially in Maine, you know, one of the things we see happen is that if a school closes, let's think about a number of the island, the uh, islands, you know, if a school closes, that ceases to be a viable community anymore. It becomes a summer community. It becomes a resort community. Um, and you know, I don't think that support for publication, uh, public education is just a thing of the past. Again, 90% of people send their children to public, you know, 90% of children go to public schools. I live in a place that is, is quite a conservative town. You would imagine that there, you know, most of the votes went to Trump in the last election, but there is incredible enthusiasm for the public school. Um, there's a willingness to fund this public school. It is the center of social life and it makes this place continue to be a viable community. And I also think in that same way, these these fights that um, about uh, whether so-called uh, critical race theory or um, about masks, these aren't about we are going to abandon uh, public schools. These are about what should be happening in our public schools. So I, I agree that, that with John that even though I may find a number of the positions troubling, they signal a commitment to the public school. Right, and I think that, right, the battles have been about the levels of control, uh, mm -hmm. where should the authority lie, and what should the schools do, not on the presence of the schools themselves. And I think Doris is really uh, really spot on there. You know, I think, frankly, we have much more consensus about public education than we do about many other institutions. And indeed, the No Child Left Behind and, and Every Student Succeeds story reflects. Look at how, look at the overwhelming majorities in each case that, that, that rallied behind those measures you know, and think about how much polarization there's been on other questions, you know, healthcare, the environment and energy. I mean, these have been wars. And I would say at the federal level, it's been relatively, you know, relatively consensual. I think the real battles happen at the local and state levels, and they're not about whether we should have schools or fund schools. They're about what schools should do, and most of all, who should decide. And I think that's the big story in the history of education is this ongoing tension and battle between different levels of government, different levels of authority. So Horace Mann is barely successful in creating state authority. That kicks in really during what we call the progressive era, the era between the 1890s and the 1920s, where you see especially urban school systems and also state school systems that have actual teeth. Right in the Horace Manor in the 19th century, they didn't really have what we would call bureaucratic authority. Even when they passed laws that said schooling was compulsory, people didn't really have to go. Well, starting the progressive era, they do. And we even we create systems with real teeth. Um, but what that means, of course, is now you have all sorts of extra local actors. So at the city level, it's not just a neighborhood anymore, because in the 19th century, each neighborhood had its own school board. Now there's a city school board. And maybe your neighborhood doesn't like what the city school board wants. Maybe the city school board is dominated by the other political party. And so these are going to create many more tensions. Again, to Doris' point, not about whether we should have schools, or whether we should fund schools, but who should control them and what they should do. Americans don't agree about America, if you haven't got it. And so I think it's inevitable, and I would even say salutary, that we argue about that in our schools. Well, and I mean, that gets to the 
the big question that I want to sort of dig into a little bit here in the last quarter hour of our show, which is this business about assimilation and control and diversity and, you know, all that stuff. Because, I mean, somebody on, on one of our prior shows reminded us that some of the public school um, enthusiasm in prior generations was to assimilate immigrants right and to make sure that they learned how to how to be a citizen in america so that people didn't want them going to catholic school they wanted them going to public school so that they would you know get that um papist stuff out of the way but you know all of these fights are still going on whether they should learn evolution whether they should learn climate science whether they should learn racial history you know the prevailing values of that community in, infiltrate these conversations about what the school should teach and as our regional and political divisions become more acute the fights over what should be taught in school become more acute and it becomes harder and harder to have a shared vision of what it means to be an American so talk to that proposition a little bit Doris I think it's your turn you know, I thanks for giving me the easy one, Anne. Um, <laughs> I so I I want to say I don't think that there's ever been a sort of um, agreement about what what should be happening in schools and um, if we should be assimilating or not. Um, there have certainly been uh, folks in power who have been able to exercise a more assimilationist uh, influence at various times. But I think you know, one of the things we see is that we have local control, and, and this is a tension um, perhaps unique uh, to uh, the United States in its local control. We have local control reflecting the concerns of the community. And then we often have either state but often federal intervening in, to temper uh, those, um, those local uh, pieces. And so we might see that through um, Brown versus Board of Education. We might see that through the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? We, we see this way where the federal government comes in to temper with a sense of, um, a sense of equity, um, and and we saw that again with no child, you know, no child left behind, and every student succeeds act. So, I am, I I think that you know one of the reasons that uh, John and I teach education in you know in colleges and universities is because it is this public space of contestation. Uh, I don't, and, and I think that that's what makes it an incredibly interesting space. So I don't see it as a failure for us to not have consensus. I see it as emblematic of this public institution in a democracy. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our guests this afternoon are Doris Santoro, whom you just heard, Professor of Education at Bowdoin College, and Jonathan Zimmerman, who we're going to hear next, uh, the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. This program was pre-recorded on January 18th. So Jonathan, jump in on this um, 
Well, I think, I think Doris made a very eloquent plea for and summary of this democratic ideal. I think the only thing I would add to it is because it's a democracy, it also requires a commitment on the part of the citizens to play by the rules, right? That's what democracy requires, including the, the golden rule, which is being willing to lose. And we're now at a time when we see that many people are not. And I'd go even farther, you know, one of the tensions that's run through my whole work is the kind of debate between different visions of America is what I think America is and what our schools should be doing. It should be introducing people to that debate and teaching them how to engage. But what if it turns out that the demos, i.e. the people, don't necessarily want that? I call it democratic because I think that that's the kind of activity, the sort of behavior that we need to make a democracy. But what happens if the demos doesn't want it? Maybe it's not democratic at all. And maybe people like myself have not made a good enough democratic case for it. That's a chilling thought, Jonathan. I mean, I've spent my career grappling with that and trying to promote this idea. But let's face it. I mean, as a student once said to me, how many people would join an organization called Students for Debating the Other Side in Schools? Right? They're like, more nuance, more nuance, you know, <laughs> more debate. That's not why people enter this realm. They enter it because they think they know what's right and they want to impose it on other people. And that goes for those on the right and on the left. Um, uh, and those of us who want to debate between the two, who want the 1619 Project presented in schools next to the regular textbook, with the students asked, well, can you please sort out the difference? Who wants that exactly? Some people want the 1619 Project and some people want the regular history textbook. How many people are in the Zimmerman camp? We don't know, but I think they're a minority. I think the Zimmermans have not done a good enough uh, a job of making a case for that. Well, and I mean, it's so interesting because, you know, we ask ourselves this question, is there a public interest in teaching equity and diversity in a pluralistic society, even if the neighborhood itself does not feel tolerant, right? Or um, is there a, um, a, a civic mission to teaching critical thinking, even if what the people in the neighborhood really want is for you to believe what I tell you to believe? I mean, how do we manage this as a yeah. country? Doris, what do you think? I, so, you know, one of the things that Jonathan was talking about, John was talking about earlier, were civic virtues. And I, I think that critical thinking is a civic virtue um, that does not need to be partisan. Being able to respect the value of people different from ourselves, that's a democratic value. And so I think that absolutely that we even that we have a duty to offer different perspectives and to offer them um, sympathetically by offering the truth of what is there. You know, one of the things I've been practicing lately with my uh, students in my contemporary American education class is really thinking about even if we disagree with a position expressed in something we read in the news or see, you know, see in a, in a um, article we read, what is motivating 
this person? What do they care about? And I think if we can start moving in that direction, then we can start to find more of that common ground uh, that John had talked about earlier, that saying that we have actually more common ground in education than we think. I think that the heightened pitch of where we are, again, is a failure of us learning how to practice our civic virtues um, and and a failure of being a failure of not being able to engage with nuance and think at least sympathetically to hold another side for a short period of time. Jonathan, is there a public policy solution here or is this just well look, you know, I I I think there are all kinds of things we can do. Um, so let me just take one very modest example from a column I wrote recently where I, I was reading about the history of sister cities. Um, and uh, it's fascinating. It's all about the Cold War, you know, and it was, you know, we're a divided uh, universe. And what we need to do is we need to learn, have more people to people exchange. So, you know, we need sister cities in the Soviet bloc and in the Warsaw Pact countries. And we've got them, right? And the column I wrote said, well, that's all fine and good, but for exactly the same reasons, we need sister cities in our own state. Like I live in Pennsylvania and that's what Jim Carville described as Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in between. I mean, that's what it is politically. Um, so why shouldn't Philadelphia have 12 sister cities that are small places in Pennsylvania that are politically red? I mean, that's what we need. We need much more engagement with each other. And, you know, you could have an hour each week where students from those two places are brought together in the online space and the teachers lead them in a discussion. We could do that. Yeah. Well, we're kind of running out of time here. I feel like we could spend a whole nother hour on this, but we're going to wrap up now. And I'd like you each to just take a few minutes and summarize your thoughts about whether our public schools are failing or fulfilling their civic mission and what we can do about it. So um, Doris, you go first, take a minute or two and give us your final thoughts. Thank you. And thanks for this great conversation, um, Anne and John. I am thinking that we need to not just learn about, you know, how to engage, um, you know, we don't, we need to learn not just about civic education or to learn about, you know, how, how a bill becomes a law, but we need to learn how to practice in civic engagement. We need to learn how to become um, political actors with each other. And I really like the idea uh, John presented of having uh, students from different schools uh, meet each other. You know, one of the things that is also a part of our baked into um, the way education is designed in the United States is that it is um, based on most of it's based on residents, and as a result, we tend to go to school with people who hold the same um, political perspectives as us, who share the same uh, racial and ethnic or linguistic background or religious background as our own. You know, so I recently uh, moved from the People's Republic of the West End of Portland, <laughs> and um, and finish up your thought, but and and. Um, 
And um, now I live in the Western mountains of Maine and my seventh grade daughter gets to practice what it's like to live with ideological diversity that she didn't have before. And so it's been, it's, and it's something that I think she's going to be a much better person because of. So yeah. thanks so much for asking. Thank you. John, give us your parting thoughts here. Take a minute or two. Uh, what? And thank you for this conversation. And thanks to Doris for her fabulous contributions to it. I think the only thing I'd add to her very eloquent statement is that, you know, this is on all of us. You know, I don't want any listener um, to think that what I'm doing is criticizing teachers and principals specifically. Um, uh, they are heroes and heroines and they have a way harder job than me. That's not what this is about. Um, what this is about is really the civic tone and tenor of our country, right? And whether we can find ways to actually speak with each other. Sometimes I imagine my own students, my undergraduates, um, and the media environment they've grown up and what they think politics is. What they think politics is are two talking heads on cable TV shouting at each other or people on social media hating each other. That's what they've grown up with. And unless we give them a different model of political, of political exchange, that's what they're gonna have. Now, there are many institutions that are charged with improving us as human beings, but our public schools are the only ones that are designated for making us better citizens. They're our only public institution to do that. So I do think that the burden falls on them to teach future generations a better way of exchange than we've engaged in. We messed it up every which way. And the only way out is through our schools. I really do believe that. So everybody listening, um, League of Women Voters, public service message, go to your school board meeting, get involved, figure out what they're doing, have your say whatever that may be. Now we are out of time. Thank you to our guests this afternoon, Doris Santoro, Professor of Education at Bowdoin College, and Jonathan Zimmerman, the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education at the University of Pennsylvania. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We're streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is at LWVME.org for more information about this topic, to read articles on the subject, or to learn about other shows in our series. You can subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org or email us at downeast at LWVME.org. That's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month.